everybody and welcome to Life Negotiations. My name is Lucine Merabi. I am a professional negotiator and in this show I bring you professional negotiators that I work with or that I know so that together we share information on hostage negotiations, suicide negotiations, corporate negotiations, negotiations with children. We talk about everything negotiation. And today's guest is a very special one because he is one of my colleagues. We work together and we provide masterclasses together. His name is Kirk Cannell. Kirk has a fascinating background for over 30 years. He has been involved in crisis negotiations. He is a former head of hostage negotiation and armed policing in Scotland. You will hear his wonderful accent. And he has saved many lives, been involved in more than 200 crisis negotiations all around the world. We are currently collaborating as a negotiation trainers for ADN Group, the international negotiation agency based in Paris. And we have worked together. We have provided trainings together. He's a wonderful person. And I know that he has also gone through a lot of adversity in his life outside of the negotiation table. And he has shared that with me. And I absolutely wanted to share that with you because knowing how to deal with the difficulty in life is one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And knowing how to build that emotional and mental toughness that we need in difficult negotiations, how can you export that into everyday life and face adversity? He is an expert at this. And besides being one of the best negotiators in the world, he is the founder of Negotiated Resolutions, gives advisory and negotiation training all around the world. People go to him when things get tough. Okay, so I'm very proud and honored to have him as one of my colleagues, as a friend. And without further ado, here is Kirk Kinnett. Hi, Kirk. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Obviously, we've already worked together, so I already know you, but some listeners might not know you yet. So could you please start with explaining us a little bit about what you do, what you've been doing, your fascinating background, and what you do today? Yeah, hi, Lozine. Thank you. Um, really nice to see you again, and, and thanks for a warm welcome. Yeah, so just to introduce myself and my role and how I've worked with you in the past. So previously, I was the head of armed policing and hostage negotiation in Scotland. And I spent 20 years as a hostage negotiator there. And I worked along with the UK team and the international team. And it's something I was involved with for a long time. In the last couple of years, I worked with US law enforcement to advise them on de-escalation of conflict in relation to some of the protests that were going on across America at the time. And when I retired after 30 years of service in law enforcement, of course, I set up my own business and decided to transfer the skills that I had learned in the hostage negotiation world into the corporate world. And of course, um, met you through the wonderful introduction of Marwan and the people at ADN Group and then did some training with you teaching people in the corporate world where we shared our negotiation experience and you know you shared some of the the depth of experience you have in terms of negotiation in the corporate world and that helps me transition to understand that a bit better but basically 
we, we share the same skill set, just coming at it from a, a different angle. Yeah, and doing those trainings together was really fascinating. And I learned a lot from you, actually, because we saw that all those skills that you have in the hostage negotiation world and crisis negotiation is so easily transferable to the corporate world because we see that whenever we are negotiating with an adversary, we, we come to a few things that are similar. And I would love to talk about that so that we can add as much as value as we can to a large audience, not only in police forcing or corporate, but anybody who negotiates anything, which in the end is obviously everybody, right? Yeah, listen, um, absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, when you mentioned that they are one of the things that connects with people when we do this teaching and you'll re reflect on this also, is that all of the skills that we teach, sometimes they are the most applicable when negotiating with your children to get them to eat their dinner. So the skills can be used in any environment. Absolutely. Exactly. Once you know how to negotiate with your children, you can negotiate with anybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I remember when we were doing this training together that we were teaching listening skills. Obviously, listening skills are key and essential to be a good negotiator and reach good agreements. And of course, there is the basic work done by Carl Rogers, who has done some amazing work and who teaches us about mirroring and how to make somebody understood that we really listened to them and understood what they were saying. But then, I mean, I take it further by saying we have to listen in 5D, what is being said, how is it being said, what is not being said, what is being said between the lines. And you shared something that I found very interesting. You shared something about understanding how someone reflects and their thoughts and belief systems and values. Can you please share a bit more about that, please? Yeah, so it's something that's in the world of hostage negotiation, and I was across at the FBI and learned what they teach based on the work of, of Carol Rogers about some active listening skills. Yeah. So I learned that maybe 10, 15 years ago across at the FBI, and we developed it further. So within the world of hostage negotiation, we had to break it down. And when I, you know, I left law enforcement, I spent some time with my, my good friend, Richard Mullinder, and we further developed and evolved all of the listening skills, which became the focus of what we were, you know, trying to achieve. It's, it's where we understood that we made most ground over the years. So our experience was, reflecting on the 99.9% .9 of success that hostage negotiators have for every type of challenge, we broke it down to say, well, what is, what is it that makes it so successful? What are the key ingredients? So there's clearly a menu there. And we evaluated the menu. And when we came to listening, we changed the way that we teach listening so that people could understand, not only do we talk about the general listening skills, but we teach people what to listen for. And mm. basically there are seven layers of, of ingredients as we call them, the seven layers of listening. And for me, the, the first thing we obviously listen for normally is, is facts. Most of us are, we can hear a conversation and pick up most of the facts. The second layer is one of emotions. So in a conversation, you would generally hear that, you know, I was going for a, a walk and I, I met one of my friends and meeting him or her made me feel really happy because I've not seen them for a while. So we're establishing the emotion of joy or happiness along with the facts of meeting that friend. And, you know, my experience is that um, a percentage of the world hear both of those um, layers without too much training. And we call that 50% of the world women. Um, men tend to be really logical in their dialogue because when they, you know, 
the expression I give is that I'd maybe come home after being out for the afternoon and my wife would perhaps ask me, oh, you were out with Gregor and tell me, how is, how is Paula doing? And I would say, don't even know how Gregor's doing. We didn't ask that question. We don't, you know, we don't, he maybe mentioned it, but it was filtered out. So when we become a hostage negotiator, you learn not to filter information out. So you listen for facts and emotions because that helps you connect with other human beings, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the next layers, we listen for values, beliefs, motivators, currency, and worth. And so we break that down to, to values and beliefs. What are values? Values are things that obviously we would describe as something which is the, at the core of you. You know, it's, it's something you would say is intrinsic to the way that you evaluate yourself. And typically that would be loyalty, integrity, perseverance, justice, all of the things that you would describe yourself. It's really the story that you tell yourself is who you want to be. And a belief, of course, is a mental acceptance of that claim to be true. The belief is something you would believe about yourself in line with those values. Mm-hmm. So you would say, well, I'm, I'm an honest, hardworking, you know, generous person. That means that that makes me kind. And if that makes me kind, that makes me a good person. And therefore, I am a good person. So you can see that these things are all connected and that the story we tell ourselves kind of fits with those emotions and values and beliefs. Motivators and currency. Motivators are really, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Where does your drive come from? And to have a superficial understanding of someone like you or I, people may say, well, you're motivated by being successful or you're motivated by earning money. But if you truly understand me, Um, you'll understand that I'm not motivated by money at all. In fact, my motivation for success is based on a desire for security. Having grown up with relatively little wealth and probable insecurity and uncertainty around about my future, it became part of me that I was going to ensure that my children had a level of comfort and wealth. So my the reason I get out of bed in the morning is not for money and it's not for me. It's for security, for a nice home and, and, and a future for my, my family. Mm-hmm. And because that's what I would see as makes a, you know, an honourable man and, and it's, that's part of my values and belief system. It's all connected. And then we think about facts, emotions, values, beliefs, motivators, currency and worth, the next two, currency. What is my currency? So in terms of um, my negotiation skills, my ability to teach people so that they can transfer those skills, not only in the corporate world, into their personal life, that's the thing that gives me currency. Mm. My unique selling point, my ability. What is it that allows me to trade in this world and be successful? Because if my currency is out of date, then I become less valid. So if you understand what makes me tick, of course you can then connect with me. And the last thing about value, which, um, you know, we break that down even further, talking about the value equation, most people in the corporate world understand value to just be value for money. Think about bottom line cost, that becomes their only perception of value. But when you examine value clearly, even from derived from mathematical equation of the Inomar equation, value has got four components. 
And value really is about deriving more benefit than, than you perceive that you, that you spend. So value is about cost. It's about function. It's about social and psychological aspects. So how much is this thing going to cost me? How useful is this thing for me? Do I need it? And how does it make me look? And how does it make me feel? And sometimes when we ignore the social and psychological aspects of value, then it's 50% of the equation that we lose out on because you will rightly recognize some people feel more passionate about the way that they feel or the way they are being perceived than, than perhaps even the cost to them in reputational terms. So it's really about understanding what all of these levels and when you figure them all out, once you start to know all of the detail, you can start to form a picture of what makes a person tick. And when you understand what makes you tick, you can, of course, start to connect with that individual and have what we would probably call an engrossed transformational conversation, an engrossed transformational moment where you just connect with someone. And you know that moment where you'll walk away from a conversation and say, he just gets me, she just gets me. And that's the moment when the person that you're talking to or experiencing something with believes that you understand them and they feel understood. So we're going back to this emotion of feelings and emotions. So when people feel understood, they connect with you. And hostage negotiators learn that when you connect with people, you can influence them and you can sell them hope. You can sell them another vision or another option. And really that's what we, we teach in the corporate world is that there's always more options. You just need to know how to frame those options in the context of the person in front of you and not in a way that you've been trained before or it's just it's always done that way or it's just business when you realise it's personal and it's it's more focused. So in terms of hostage negotiation, we, we bring authenticity to you know corporate deals and, and business transactions. And that's what, what creates, for me, sustainable relationships, sustainable growth. So... I hope that answers your question, at least in terms of listening. Yeah, well, I listened, didn't I? I love this. Let me repeat what I understood. So you're saying there are seven layers of listening, facts, emotions, values, beliefs, currency, motivations, and worth. And then you take it further and say values has four other components, cost, function, social, and psychological aspects. So if you combine all that, that allows you to connect with people on a deeper level Well, they get the feeling like, wow, this person understands me, this person maybe values me, or I can talk to this person. And that is then the key in how to negotiate with someone who doesn't want to negotiate or- Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, something that we preach regularly and, and we, we challenge, you know, perceptions to say, and here's one that we say openly, knowledge is not power. No. Okay, it's something you hear common saying, knowledge is power, knowledge is power. And we say knowledge is not power. It's the application of knowledge which confers power. It's what you do with that information. So you may have lots of information with people, but if you don't use that in a positive way to establish a strong relationship and recognize that you have to do so with authenticity, then you'll never influence anyone. You know, you you may get a short term agreement, but actually you'll never have a sustainable relationship and so when you reflect on that and you and you perhaps review how you establish relationships with your friends and family then you can make them stronger 
So mm. it's, it's about recognizing ways to make those relationships stronger, but always be authentic. I love this. And this is something most people don't do at all, right? If you look at the population, majority, large majority of people don't know how to really listen and let alone go as far as everything that you just described. But let's assume you have someone who is a good listener. So they kind of know these skills and can build rapport and have the empathy and have a lot of skills that we need as good negotiators. But then they are faced with an adversary that has just at the upper hand, that has better cards. So the balance of power is not in balance. And obviously we have that all the time when clients come to us, it's because they are in a negotiation where they think, okay, this is impossible. We're never going to come to an agreement. That's why they reach out to us. How do you advise someone who's dealing with another party and that party simply has more power in the negotiation? Can you turn that around and how? Yeah, listen, thank you. That's a, a really good question. And so the answer is, can we turn it around? Absolutely. That's what I have spent my whole life doing. So on every single occasion, as a hostage negotiator, the other person had all of the power and I had zero. Mm. The person at the edge of the building or the edge of the bridge was in complete control of their behavior and I had zero control initially. The person at the bank robbery, the, the bank robber or the guy with a gun in a house has all of the power. They have the weapons and I have none. They can cause harm and initially I can do nothing to prevent that without with no force. Yeah. All I have is my persuasive skills. So eventually, we recognize that we have to move that balance of power and we move it from them into the middle where that power is shared and eventually over to us where we can explain and have them listen to our perspective. But we can't do that until they feel heard, they mm -hmm. feel understood, they have articulated their position sometimes over and over again, sometimes with, you know, frustration and anger and passion. But once we recognize where that comes from and we understand what's really going on and we can articulate that we know what's really going on, then you can have a connection with people and they usually see things reasonably. In terms of, you know, initial negotiations when the balance of power is usually in the minds of the other team, um, that is always about perception. And all we have to really do is stabilize the other side. So we try not to antagonize. Of course, it would be terrible if through lack of skills or training or empathy, we made the situation worse. Yeah. So the number one thing is to stabilize and enhance rather than make things worse. And when you listen to people, you demonstrate that you are there to understand their perspective and you're authentic and you're there to find a solution which is fair to everyone. You're not there to defeat them eventually, because having spent 30 years in, in law enforcement, I never saw that talking someone off of a bridge where their life was at stake as a victory. It's just not a thing. It's something that is of benefit to everyone. So when you come with that mindset that you're not trying to defeat someone or manipulate someone, that you're there with a genuine, authentic viewpoint to bring a balanced, fair dispute, debate. So we're not afraid of conflict. Conflict is where there is hidden value and yeah. negotiators are trained to look for hidden value that sometimes is just ignored or forgotten about. And it's those skills that we build on 
and a level of professionalism that allows us to be precise and identify things. And when we talk about things where there is a common shared objective, and you know that that's part of of Marwan's um, philosophy with the ADN group, is that focusing on the common shared objective usually makes both parties reasonable in their outlook. And when you can get both parties to being reasonable, the solution is never really far away. Mm, amazing. So, yeah, obviously not fair away from conflict. That's what we're taught from day one. And that conflict yeah. is an opportunity. And yet we're often faced with that kind of situations where the other party has more power or at least better cards. So you're saying that these listening skills that you just mentioned are then key to build rapport to stabilize the situation and enhance it and understand their perspective because you're going to make them talk because you built this report and you make them realize that we are here to find a solution that is fair for both parties. And with your authenticity and your presence and your empathy, you can then change the cards that are on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And probably the final ingredient once we have gone through that process is the search for leverage. Sometimes you have to find leverage to help adjust the perspective of the other person. If they are adamant, you know, if they are defensive and they won't see something which is right in front of their, their very nose, we sometimes have to use leverage that we have heard. And let me give you an example of one of the best uses of leverage being used in a, in a good way. So, it's a call in relation to a person who's contemplating suicide. And it's not me, it's another hostage negotiator who, who is talking um, at the scene and has his support team. And he says to the person who's contemplating death, you know, the, the person says, I want to kill myself. I have lost my job. I have lost my house. Cannot face my family. Um you know, it's just my life has come to an end. I've got so much shame hanging over me right now. And I just can't face my wife and daughter. I can't look them in the eye. And in that conversation, rather than saying, well, I understand how that must feel. You know, we know that's probably the worst thing you can say. Um, you know, Graham, the negotiator said, okay, I hear that you clearly care about how you're seen by your daughter and by your wife and who is going to hold the hands of your daughter at your funeral in two days time. You know, you, you talk about the way that you have a relationship with your daughter and you're teaching your daughter to have courage, no matter the events. Well, this very example, you can use this example as an opportunity to demonstrate to her the courage that you need with challenges in your life. And it was for him engrossed transformational moment, you know, that moment where he just stopped in his tracks and, and the realization that once he had been stabilized, he saw an option where life was better than death because it connected with things that were important to him, the story that he told himself, which was part of being a good dad. And he was so determined to be a good dad that he couldn't face failure. Yeah. But when we reframed a failure and say, okay, but actually what's also true of you is courage. And that's more important than avoiding failure mm. than he bought into that. So we recognize that we can listen for leverage in those conversations and people often give away more leverage than they would perceive. So it's up to us as negotiators to listen for this, to help close the deal, but in actual fact, to secure a stronger relationship for a positive outcome. And that's going back to what we 
said at the start, it's about finding something which is fair to everyone. It's never about win-lose. It's never about that. Because if I'm negotiating with you and I win and you lose, you'll never do business with me ever again. And that's not a good business model. And that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, we we share those same values with, with Marwan and the ADN group is that that's their philosophy. They have a they have a philosophy which is based on integrity and, and fairness. And so, yeah, it's harder sometimes to do it that way, but yeah. more satisfying in the long run. And sustainable, exactly. Because I met Marwan in 2013, so that goes way back. And ever since we started collaborating, obviously there are a lot of negotiations happening between us as well, right? About how we yeah. collaborate. And, and not once has there anything ever been decided or discussed that was not fair. And people tell me, how do you negotiate with negotiators? I say, well, negotiations with negotiators are actually the easiest, the fastest, the most smooth, because we both know where we're headed and there are no games being played and we directly go to the shared common objective. So then just so smooth. But people tend to think the better of a negotiator you are, the harder it is to negotiate with you. And I often have also clients, et cetera, coming to me and saying, wow, we were prepared to having a much more difficult negotiation with you. I can't believe it was so easy. So I recently negotiated two settlements. One was for a nine-figure sum and one was for an eight-figure sum. Massive numbers. Yeah. And you would think that in the corporate world, the lawyers, you know, the, the combat would be part of that. But actually, when we talk about and say, I'm not playing poker. I'm not going to play poker with you. Don't play poker with me. Let's just find some common ground. Let's not be deceitful to each other. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's behave in a professional way. Mm-hmm. Then the solution can be achieved much quicker. And when people recognize that you're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes, you're not trying to defeat them or, you know, betray them, then most people can be reasonable and we can come to a conclusion, a satisfaction whatever that deal happens to be, and you can both walk away from that feeling good. And I don't ever want to be in a deal where my partner, opponent, other business walks away feeling bad about anything. Some things will win, some things will lose. But the most important thing is we always focus on achieving what is fair for everyone. And that doesn't mean it's even, it just means it's fair. And that shows the importance of the work that we're doing and that there's still so much work to be done, but because there is still, whether we like it or not, there is this negative connotation about negotiation and about negotiators and people thinking that negotiators are smooth talkers or, or, yeah, we still have a lot of work to do, Kirk, to set that straight and to show that actually we're here to find agreements. We are agreement makers. We all well, hopefully that. this conversation with in will will go out and yeah. hopefully change the well, perspective of some people who, who don't understand just yet. Exactly. So we learned a lot about listening, about how do you deal with somebody who has better cards and appearance to start with. And as you know, I'm really passionate about how can we use negotiation skills in our everyday life when we're facing adversity. So what about the counterpart is not hostage taker, the counterpart is not corporate client, but the counterpart is invisible. The counterpart you have to negotiate with is called life and life throws something difficult at you. So you're facing hardship. How can you use your negotiation skills to face that? 
I mean, I've already shared on social media and with you a bit more in detail about what's happening personally with my son having a rare disease that is progressive and literally slowly killing him and how to face that. And I've been using my negotiation skills to face that so that I can help him while staying optimistic and resilient and agile without losing that inner flame of joyness and happiness so that I can be the best mom I can be for him. And you have shared with me also some personal experiences that are very difficult. Would you mind sharing that here with the audience of how you faced some adversity and how your negotiation skills help you in that? Yeah, listen, of course. And first of all, before I do that, Lizine, thank you for sharing your story, which is still ongoing. And it's a daily battle that you face. And you have the highest admiration from me, and I'm sure many others in terms of the way you find a balance to battle on and, and look after and protect your son, but also you deal with many of the demands of your business and family life, and you juggle all of these things and keep it going. So yeah, you have my complete admiration for, for that challenge that you face and face with most of the time a wonderful smile. So, so in terms of your resilience, uh, I wish you continued resilience and yeah, so where does that match with me? So in terms of resilience and, and stress, for me, there are a couple of things that perhaps I learned some skills in the hostage negotiation world that we go through the concept of stress inoculation training. Basically, we prepare people for an event which they will face so that they will not feel the impact of the stress as much as if they had gone in cold. Mm -hmm. And so really resilience is about making sure that you have the resources to deal with events which happen around you. Sometimes it feels like they happen to you and sometimes they do happen to you. So how do you, how do you build resilience for things that you can never anticipate? And that's something that you're going through just now. And I'm sure you probably never anticipated that you would have to, to deal with these things, but you, you remain focused because Every day your focus is on the best quality of life for your boy and you and you put your own needs to the side right now, but you you get through with you know a level of strength. And mine is 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 different to that. And you know, one or two of the things are, are trivial in nature to that. And it's that perspective that helps you you have that. So I think probably the best way to to have this conversation is to say at the at the end of my you know, law enforcement career, I was involved, I was suspended as part of an ongoing investigation where an individual had alleged corruption all the way to the top and there was four senior police officers suspended for an investigation, eventually cleared, but at the time, reputational damage, um, perception of, of wrongdoing and all of that, all of the things that probably is the is the worst possible thing for a law enforcement officer to be accused of. So, yeah, I felt initially there was a there was a shock and a and a bit of bit of trauma. But in actual fact, when I put that into perspective of what I had previously faced in my life, then I realised that was trivial because people who know me recognise that my of course my reputation would be you know reinstated in due course as it was. But in terms of that trauma that I was facing, you know, I reflected on trauma that I had faced earlier in my life. And it's a trauma that, I, that affected my family. But, you know, I had a point where I had four children die between my daughter being born and my eventual 
son being born uh, over a period of six, seven years. And initially, when my son Daryl was born, we realized that, you know, he was not going to have a sustainable life. He was put on a life support machine. And myself and my wife turned off that life support machine the following day. Now, nothing could have prepared me or, or my wife or my family for the impact of that event. So n- none of that previous resilience training would be relevant. So really what we have to do is find something else that would stabilize us and make us f- focus on the world and think that an event had happened. The meaning that we attach to that event would would define how we continued for the future. Yeah. And of course, we, we had to we had to grieve the, the loss of my son and then you know, we continued on that journey to to try and have children. Three more, <clears throat> three more children died, and eventually we kept going. and And my son was born. And my son, at the time, you know, we were there in the full expectation that he would possibly, you know, have some some disability or in, in some format. But we went there to say, well, we accept which whatever the outcome is, whatever your God has in store for you, we accept that because accepting things that you cannot control is half of that battle. So you accept the things that you you cannot control as uncontrollable, and all you can do is control the things that you can control. So we focused on being healthy, you know, trying to stay happy and loving and caring and protecting, hopefully, even my daughter, who was very young at that stage, from and trying to shield her from some of the things. So it's about putting things into perspective. And, you know, over a period of time, yeah, it was a it was a tough time. But in actual fact, when you've been through that experience, for me, one, two, three, four times, you develop a resilience and you recognize that um, you can become stronger. So eventually when, you know, things happen later in life, when you compare it to the to perhaps a big thing which has happened then it pales into insignificance and, and you can remain resilient. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Kirk. This, this this really is amazing. And I remember the first time you shared that with me, it's being a good negotiator is one thing, but knowing how to be a good person is a whole other ballgame, right? And you going through something like this and still having the resilience to get back up and stand back up. And in this case, with your wife, try to have another child still shows just so much courage and optimism because how many people would have given up, right? Of saying, this is so painful. I'm not going to go through this again. I have to be honest. Most of that drive came from my wife who was more determined than me. But but listen, you eventually recognize that you have to have, you have to have faith, you know, and faith is, we were never going to be presented with evidence that everything was going to be okay. So we have to have faith. And as people, we could connect with us to say, that's okay. That will be sustainable for us because that's who we are. Mm. And, and that's part of our self-belief, which when you connect with yourself and you know who you are, then that journey becomes easier. And it's, you know, listen, it's a, it's a similar but much different comparison to what you're going through just now because you, you know, you've told me you have a faith and you have a focus on ensuring that every day that your that your boy is here is that it's the best day that it can be. It's that you make the best out of every day that you have with him. And for me, that's a tougher and longer journey and, and shows a level of resilience that, yeah, we're all different. But your yeah. your story is is similar, Lucy. 
Yeah, and as you said, we don't choose these things, right? But I love what you said about, and I wrote it down, the meaning that we attach to the event is going to define how we deal with it. Because it's so easy to go into victimhood, right? Why me? Why my child? Why this event? Why, why, why? But you're never going to get an answer to that why. So might as well give an answer yourself with an answer that is as meaningful as possible and as empowering as possible of saying, you know what, maybe I had to go through this to learn A, B, and C. And for me, what helped was when I decided to share the story. A few years ago, I wrote an article. And a few months ago, I wrote a poem. And I decided I'm just going to put that out there. And it just went completely viral. And, you know, people I didn't know messaging me and saying that this really helped them and inspired them or helped them make an important decision. And that's when, you know, if you can share your suffering, then you know, I'm, I, you know, my background is in finance. So I'm very analytical. I think in Excel. And <laughs> I used to have, and my sister is still laughing about this, but I used to say when I buy something, I calculate how many times am I kind of going to wear this? And then, then it's worth the price because it's not just a one-time thing. And I applied the same thing with this suffering. I have to go through this suffering anyway. So by sharing it, if I can inspire others on the way, or if I can make somebody see things that they're going through slightly differently, which helps them then go through it, then my suffering gets like divided. And then it's not that chunk of a pain anymore because it has served me, it has served her, it has served him. So yeah, that's my weird way of thinking. But I think there's a lot of power in going through something and then using that, whatever it is that you learn through it to help others who go through something similar or who can relate with it. So thank you so much for sharing the story. I know you don't share it very often, but I think it's an amazing story and shows so much mental toughness and mental resilience and emotional capabilities and that all the soft skills that we need to be good negotiators are actually not only useful on the negotiation table, but in everyday life everywhere. Kirk, I don't know how long we've been talking and how long we still have. I don't want to take too much of your time. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for sharing all this. I mean, I love working with you and I look forward to all the other masterclasses we're going to provide together. For the listeners at home, where can they find more information about you or how can they reach out to you? What is the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so listen, thank you, Lazine. It's been a, a fabulous conversation. I know that you always take us to difficult places in those difficult conversations, so that's most welcome. You know, we're not afraid of those. So yeah, and if anyone wants to follow up and get some training or advice or guidance or support in terms of negotiation or even any of the elements we've spoken about. So there's two two organizations. One naturally is ADN Group, who we, we both, you know, we're associates of ADN Group. But my own company is called Negotiated Resolutions. And you can find us at www.negotiatedresolutions.com. Have a look and see what's there. And if there's something that you would like to engage, then don't hesitate to just drop us an email and we'll get back in touch as, as soon as we can and help progress and make this conversation about negotiation take over a bit more rather than conflict. Because especially right now, as we, as we come out of COVID, we will have to renegotiate terms and contracts and, and our way of life. And if we can give some advice or guidance around about that, then more than happy to help. I mean, I know you personally, and I know you're absolutely one of the best negotiators in the world. 
and you know what you're talking about with your 30 plus years of experience in crisis negotiations and now corporate negotiations and training and advisory. It's absolutely phenomenal to work with you. Thank you so much, Kirk. And for the listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And there will be more fascinating speakers to come, fascinating negotiators that I'll be interviewing. Thank you so much for watching. See you next time. 